Welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast. My name is Chris Wilson. Great to be with you again today. Hey, just a reminder, we have our national gathering in right about two weeks. We are excited that it's coming up. It's coming up quick. If you have not gotten your tickets yet, we just really encourage you to go grab them. Go to renew.org, grab some tickets, bring your friends, uh, tell everybody you know about it. We're just excited about what's going on and what God is doing through Renew, and we're going to be in Indianapolis in a new location this year. So yeah, we're just ready for it and uh, looking forward to seeing you there. On this episode of our podcast, Paul Hugobart is continuing in his series, and it's a really good series. He's talking about biblical worldview a little bit today, what that looks like, uh, how to have a biblical worldview, how a lot of uh, the population says and claims to be Christian, but they may not necessarily have a biblical worldview. So let's go and check out his insight on this. We have been in this series this month called Clay, asking the question over and over, what's shaping you? And these are important words for us to consider as followers of Jesus, as ones who want to be shaped by Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, as we consider the meaning of what it is to be a disciple, one who follows Jesus to be shaped, to be transformed by Jesus into the image and likeness of Jesus. So we're asking the question this month, what's shaping you? And making this acknowledgement that life is this constant process of being formed or shaped, whatever word you want to put on that, transformed, influenced, impacted by experiences, relationships, the content we consume, etc. There are so many things that you can put in there that we admit are shaping us. And I just want to give you a recap of last week because we, we move through these things quickly and we've, we've got to, especially when there's a lot of content. And maybe you were here with us and, and maybe you weren't. And so just a quick review of what we talked about last week. Asking the question, what's shaping us? We, we looked at just some information from this book called Eight Cultural Stories That Shape Us. Hidden World Use, Eight Cultural Stories That Shape Our Lives, written by these two authors, Steve Wilkins and Mark Sanford. And I had some questions last week that I just want to follow up, specifically questions about what is a worldview? And maybe I should have presented that uh, last week, and so I apologize for not giving maybe a definition of what a worldview is. But this comes directly from their book. They say this, a worldview is the filter through which one makes sense of life and the framework through which one views reality. Okay, so I want you to think about it. It's the filter through which we make sense of life. You think about a filter, it's it's where you put, you know, you put some stuff in the top of this filter, it strains throughout the bottom, the good stuff comes out the bottom, right? That's what you hope at least with a filter. But then the second part, the framework through which one views reality. In other words, our worldview defines for us, in a sense, what is true. What is really true. How do I make sense of the world and how do I determine what is true? And so in this book, they present these eight worldviews. We're going to go through these real quickly again, just just to state them what they are. This idea of individualism, I am the center of the universe. Consumerism, I am what I own. Nationalism, my nation exists under God, right? We didn't get to talk about this one because of a little technical, uh, technical mess last week. But moral relativism, there's no absolute truth. So my truth is as valid as yours. Scientific naturalism, only matter matters. The new age, are we gods or do we belong to God? Are we gods? 
Then the idea of postmodern tribalism. So whatever category I'm put in, that shapes my worldview more than any, anything else. And then this last one, the idea of salvation by therapy, when which really the counselors and therapists of which I am one have become almost the priests of our day and age where we go to figure out what life is all about. And we talked about these in last week's message. Again, don't have time to go back through them all today, so I'd refer you to last week's message, or even better, we flesh it out a lot further on this podcast that we do every week called Practice Makes Faithful. I would refer you to those if you need some more in-depth thinking about what those worldviews represent. We presented those last week to say this, that we don't always know what is shaping us. We don't always know what is having a deep influence upon us. We don't always know. There are a lot of things that are shaping us, and it's scary to me to know that I'm not always aware that something is shaping me. I don't know what is influencing me. And we don't always know when something is shaping us. And when you put those two statements together, what is exposed is this. For us as Christians, the assumption that my life is primarily being shaped by God, even if I call myself a Christian, may be false. And we left things hanging with that statement last week. And you may have looked at that statement and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can you say something like that? And hopefully that moved you to ponder and wonder last week. Is is this possible? That my life is being shaped by something else, even if I call myself a Christian, or God may not be the primary shaping influence in my life. Even if I attend church Sunday after Sunday, and I hear messages Sunday after Sunday, I listen to Christian podcasts, whatever it is, I listen to Christian music on the radio, it is possible that other things are shaping our lives more than God. I just left that statement hanging last week. I want to back that up for you this week as much as possible by looking at some research that has been released over the last several years that actually was some of what stimulated the impetus or the desire to preach this series. Because as I read some of this research, I was shocked. It left me with a pit in my stomach over a course of several weeks late this summer. This research was done by a couple of groups primarily, and together they joined for this research. Research was done between the years of 2017 and 2022 with George Barna, who many of you are probably familiar with, and uh, the and ACU, which is the Arizona Christian University Cultural Research Center. Okay, and here's what they start with in this research, is that they say roughly 176 million Americans claim to be Christians. That's about 69% of the population. And if you look at that stat alone, you would say, incredible. About 70%, seven out of 10 people in this nation are Christians. Is that amazing? It's amazing until you look at this next stat. Only 6% of U.S. adults, or roughly 9% of those identifying as Christians, possess, they found in their study, a biblical worldview. As we're talking about the question of worldviews, this matters. So we talk about what is a worldview, but let's define maybe more specifically, what is a Christ-centered or biblical worldview? What, what is that? 
Well, this is how they define it. A Christ-centered or biblical worldview is foremost rooted in the belief that the Bible is the infallible Word of God. So it's beginning with this understanding about Scripture, saying this is the Word of God, and we believe it is infallible. It will not fail. When we go to Scripture, we find truth. We find the truth about God. We find the truth about this world. We find the truth about us as human beings. That is where the the, the biblical worldview or the Christ-centered worldview begins is that we find truth when we open the pages of Scripture. We believe that it's the inspired Word of God that He left it for us so that we can understand what we need to about Him and about ourselves and about this world around us, about the meaning and purpose of life, about why we're here. Okay, so that's where it begins. And then the second bit is this, and that is the foundation for the manner in which Christians view reality. It is our filter. It is our source of truth in that sense. Okay, so this is what it means, in a sense, to hold a biblical or Christ-centered worldview. Okay, so have that in your mind, and then come back to this. Only 6% of U.S. adults or 9% of those who identify as Christians, possess, according to this research, a biblical worldview. Maybe now you're sitting there and saying, I understand why there was a pit in your stomach as you were reading this research for the first time. So it moved me to this place where I started asking this question as I'm digging into this research. Maybe you're asking this question too. What, What would happen if that's true? What happens... As Christians begin to lose a biblical worldview, if we call ourselves Christians, but we're no longer holding to a biblical worldview that begins with the understanding that we get about life and reality, about God, about us, about everything else, is rooted in the Word of God, what will happen if that is true? Well, here are a few things that they found. They found that 72%, again, this is research of Christians. I mean, we've known for a while that the world around us was losing a biblical worldview, but but Christians, 72% of Christians would argue that people are basically good. Now, you may sit there and say, well, I, I interact with a lot of people, and I feel like people are basically good, but as it relates to Scripture, the understanding that we are sinners in need of a Savior is really difficult if you believe that we're basically good, and you'll see how this works out in just a minute. 66% would say that having faith is all that matters regardless of what faith you have. In other words, it doesn't matter what God you worship. These are Christians again, remember. People who call themselves Christians. It doesn't matter what God you worship as long as you worship a God. Which makes sense because 64% say that all faiths are of equal value. In other words, for Jesus to claim that he was the way, the truth, and the life, well, that that was just a step too far for Christians. 58% believe that if a person is good enough, they can earn heaven. 57% believe in karma. In other words, what goes around comes around. And we know there are consequences in life, but that's a, a far leap from the idea of karma, that what goes around comes around. In other words, you earn your good in life by being good, or your bad in life by being bad. 
61% agree with ideas that are deeply rooted in new age spirituality. And you'll see how that plays out in just a second. 54% resonate with postmodernist views. Again, you'll see how that plays out in a second. And 29% believe ideas based upon secularism. Okay, so, so what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, what that looks like is that a majority of people who claim to be Christians would agree with some of these statements. All people pray to the same God or spirit, no matter what name they use for that spiritual being. This is what happens when we start to lose a biblical worldview. Or this one, meaning and purpose come from becoming one with all that is. This idea of kind of transcendence. Or maybe this one, and this one hits closer to home for probably some of us who look at that and say, well, those new agey ideas, those don't. How about this one? Meaning and purpose come from working hard. Well, working hard matters, right? Especially we as Americans, we know that working hard matters, but this is tied to this idea of individualism. Meaning and purpose come from working hard to earn as much as possible so you can make the most of life. That's what life is really about. It's about living your best life and going after everything really hard. And those things that you get, they define your life. They define the meaning and purpose of your life. Quite a few people agreed with this statement as well. There's no such thing as objective truth. Now, that's not even the question about what is objective truth or what is not objective truth and where does objective truth lie. It's just the statement that there is no such thing as objective truth. Which is why they would agree with this statement as well. What is morally right depends upon your personal beliefs. It matters what you believe. It's inside of you that you're able to determine what is right and wrong. You know we don't need somebody outside of us telling us what to believe. I think, Christians, we've said this quite a few times this month. But I think maybe now we might have to say that we see that, yes, there are many things at work shaping us. And it's, it's not always God. And there are many things at work shaping people who say they, they follow Jesus. They are Christians. And we can argue about how deep the commitment is of those who say they're Christians. And we know it's not just enough to say you're a Christian. But, but if we allow ourselves to say, well, that's somebody else that these statistics are referring to, talking about, we may miss that it could be us because I I don't always know what is shaping me. And and I don't always know when something else is at work shaping me. I've heard this said several times in the last year or two. But more and more, I'm starting to see that this is true. The church has and has had a discipleship problem for longer than many of us would like to admit. Church, if we're honest, and we talked about this in the last several months, we've sometimes set the wrong target. We've often set the wrong target. Jesus called us to be disciples, not church members, not church attendants. He called us to follow Him, to become like Him. We in the church have become somewhat complacent at times, haven't we? 
We become influenced by other things more than by God. Just put in real quick a shameless plug for what will be happening here Friday and Saturday because we will continue this conversation much further. We'll dive into this much further, the conversation about discipleship and disciple-making and what it looks like to follow Jesus and the influences that are pressing in upon us, but how we as a church can stand strong. You know, I think in this moment, we would look and say there are a lot of hurdles ahead for us, a lot of difficulties ahead. And I think it is. It is a time of difficulty. But church, it's also a time of opportunity. And so I want us to be those people who say, what are the opportunities in front of us to be disciples who make disciples? Now, this first bit of the research that I've been showing with you is, is stuff that we've been seeing coming for a while. And I already told you I had a bit of a pit in my stomach about some of this stuff. I'm going to show you now what really, what really got me. Because this is some of the freshest research that was just released this summer. As part of this research that Barna was doing, that ACU was doing, what they found is this. They decided, you know, we're going to start asking ministers what they think instead of just asking folks in the chairs what they think. Now, I don't always love that distinction because the truth is that there should be no real distinction between us. We're all followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ. But the truth is, those of us who stand on stage, who speak week after week, we, we influence, we shape, we form. And what they found is they started asking ministers, or those referred to as pastors often, only 37% of vocational ministers hold a biblical worldview at this point in time. Now get your mind around that for just a second. And what they found is they started asking some more probing questions to really understand what was going on. What they found is that then the other, I don't know how it's 62%, because there must have been a half somewhere, somewhere. 62% hold to what's called a hybrid worldview a hybrid worldview known as syncretism. And again, remember, we're talking about ministers, those who stand up on stage and influence Christians week after week. If you're saying, okay, well, what is syncretism? Let me just give you a quick definition of syncretism. Syncretism is this. It's a blending of ideas and values from a variety of holistic worldviews into a unique but inconsistent combination that represents personal preferences. And if you wonder what that blend looks like, here it is. It's often a blend of individualism, consumerism, nationalism, relativism, new ageism, naturalism, etc. So maybe you can see why asking this question, what is shaping you matters so much in our day and age? Because church, we've been influenced, and we're being influenced, and so many times we're unaware when we're being influenced. And God is asking us, will you let me shape you more than anything else? Well, it's taken us a while to get to our scripture today, but you'll see, I think, in just a minute why this scripture, this passage from Acts chapter 19, if you're following along in your Bibles. I'll, I'll invite you to open up to Acts chapter 19. We'll be in verses 8 through 20. Why this particular passage 
has so much to say for our current situation, where we find ourselves right now in this moment. Okay, you're going to see this is a story about Paul as he's engaging in a particular town called Ephesus and the type of interaction he has. And then what happens at the end of this story? It's got a wealth for us. Beautiful thing that happens at the end, and it's going to leave us with a question as well that we need to be asking ourselves. Here's the story. It says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, but but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, which is often called Christianity. You see through the book of Acts multiple times, following Jesus was called the way, which is not an insignificant thing, by the way. When you're asking the question, what's the way I should live my life? And they were saying, here's the way. Following Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way, but following him is the way. And so if we're going to live this lifestyle, it's called the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. Paul spent significant time here, at least three months plus two years and then maybe some more, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So there was gospel saturation. Luke goes on to tell us that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs, I mean, these are wild scenes, and aprons that he had touched were taken to the sick, and and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches... I command you to come out. So I want you to see these Jews who are not really holding to Jesus were seeing what Paul had been doing and they're saying, okay, well, here's this magic name that we can use to also drive out demons. And so they were going around saying, in the name of Jesus, whom this guy over here, Paul, preaches, I command you to come out. All right, here's kind of an interesting story that happens now. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, were doing this. Okay, so there's this Jewish priest Doesn't seem like he'd come over to the way of Jesus. His sons were doing this too. They also wanted to do the things that Paul were doing. So they're going around in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? I just want you to imagine that scene. I mean, it almost seems somewhat comical or super frightening or something in between. This is a wild scene. Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you guys? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating. I mean, there there are crazy things included in Scripture, right, from time to time. And this is one of those crazy stories. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding, humiliated. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Now, here's the part that I really want you to see in this story. Okay, through all the the crazy scenes that we've been watching so far, here's the part that I want you to see. Because of all that happened, because of the work that Paul had been doing those three months in the synagogue, now, 
uh, working in, in, in place of tyrannous and, and preaching and, and, and the gospel saturation that had taken place over the last two years, three months, even a little bit more possibly, what happened is this. There were many who believed. And many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. I, I don't know what all this was about. Maybe some of them had been misusing the name of Jesus. I'm not sure. We do get to see one example, however, in verse 19 of what happened. And I want you to see this. A number who had practiced sorcery. So many of those who believed, and out of those who believed, some of them had actually been practicing sorcery. That shaped their worldview. The belief that they could, they could manipulate things, maybe in the spiritual world, or maybe they considered it magic or whatever it was. They were practicing openly sorcery. But now they believe. So what do they come and do? Well, a number who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together. They all came together. They made a group decision and burned them publicly. I want you to think, can you imagine that scene? As these guys, maybe some ladies, they all come together. They have this conversation and the conversation, they know what their lives have looked like. The influence that this sorcery has had upon them. The way that shaped their worldview. What they thought was at the heart of reality. They knew what that was. But they've come to believe in Jesus. And and they know that their call is to live and practice the way of Jesus. And so they come together. They must have had a conversation. They came together. They gathered their scrolls together. And they burned them publicly. I mean, did they burn them just to get rid of them? Or do you think there was something more to that? they, They could have sold them. They could have just said, we need to get rid of these things. We're going to sell them. We're just going to to throw them out. No, but they they got together and they burned them. They said, we can't go back to this. And it wasn't like they did this at no cost. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. That's 50,000 pieces of silver which is hundreds of thousands of dollars in today's economy. So it wasn't like this had been a small thing for them. The value of their scrolls was was hundreds of thousands of dollars. This had been the thing their lives were about. Centered on sorcery. Centered on something that did not allow them to center their lives on God. And it came at a cost. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. In other words, what they did, the stand they took, the moment where they gathered together, had the conversation, brought their scrolls together, burned them publicly, the statement they made because of the stand they took influenced others. Here's what I want you to see, church. The Ephesian converts, those who had started following, those who are now believing, 
They knew they could not be shaped by God as long as they continued to allow something opposed to God to shape them. I mean, it just wouldn't work. And it seems so simple, right? It seems like, yes, that's common sense. You can't have two opposing things working to shape something and it work out the way it ought to work. That just seems like common sense. Can we be honest that in life, this is hard? This is difficult. The choice they made that day was costly. And so I've got a question for us that comes out of this story. And it's this, are we willing, like the Ephesian converts, like these new Christians, are we willing to do the hard work of authentic self-evaluation? Real, true self-evaluation and then come to the place where we cut ties with the not of God things that are shaping us. For some of them, from some of us, it may be this idea of individualism. Or it might be consumerism. Or it could be an ungodly draw to nationalism. Or it could be all of these different isms that we've looked at. Or it could be something else. I don't know what it is for you. And if I'm honest, I'm just in the place where I'm trying to find out what it is for me as well. But here's where I think it begins. It begins with this moment where we say, and I think as those Ephesian Christians realized, I want God to shape me more than anything else. Not the ideas of the culture around me, although that has an influence upon me, and it's been shaping me. Not the ideas of that friend over there, although it has an influence upon me. And if it's not of God, maybe it's still shaping me. But I want God to shape me more than anything else. It's time for a scroll-burning moment. And then it moves from this place to the next place. Conviction moves to action. We make that moment. That in that moment, we make the choice. I'm ready to take the next steps, even the hard ones so that God can shape me. So listen, I know because I'm at a place where I'm, I'm having to do a self-evaluation. I'm not certain that, that I'm, I'm not expecting anybody to be at a place of conviction right now. I'm just expecting that maybe we'd want to do some of that hard work of authentic self-evaluation and find out what has been shaping me that is not of God. And then ask the next question, am I ready to take the next steps? Surrender that thing. To have that burning of the scrolls moment in my life. We're going to end this morning. I just want to pray over us. That that God would confront us with those things that we need to surrender to Him so that He can truly shape us. So that nothing will shape us like God does. Let me pray. God, I just, um, God, I've got that feeling in the pit of my stomach about sometimes our nation, sometimes the state of the church, sometimes the state of vocational ministry, but, but Father, if I'm honest, sometimes even the state of my life, my own life, God. 
God, I pray that you'll let that feeling, if others are feeling that as well, I pray that you'll let that feeling move us to conviction, that conviction move us to action. God, as we've been walking these 21 days, and as your words have challenged us, as your Holy Spirit has been working on us, God, it's my prayer that you've been shaping us. God, I confess on behalf of myself, and maybe there are others who are confessing right now as well. God, I have been shaped by so many things. And sometimes those things have not been your things. So God, I pray you will raise up the desire within me and others this morning to truly be shaped by nothing more than you. God, you are the potter. May we be the clay. God, I ask these prayers, knowing that we're going to need you more than anything in this process. It's not something we can do on our own. And so as the Apostle Paul, in the name of Jesus, drove out demons, Father, just in the name of Jesus this morning, knowing that that name is powerful, I ask that, God, you will do your shaping and transformative work in us, in his name. This is what I pray. And the church said, amen. If you're unfamiliar with who Renew.org is, I want to just take one second and tell you a little bit about who we are and what we're all about. We care a ton about the theology behind Jesus-style disciple-making and really creating that firm foundation for churches and organizations to build upon. We invite you to check us out at Renew.org where we have free resources, ebooks, podcasts, and also we have a national conference that we have every year. And we're gathering in Indianapolis this year on April 25th and 26th. We just invite you to grab some tickets, check us out online, and see what we're all about. Hello, listener. Thank you for tuning in to a Renew.org podcast. We want to invite you to join us this April in Indianapolis for our 2024 gathering, Courageous Renewal. We will feature speakers such as Anthony Walker, Tina Wilson, Bobby Harrington, Jonathan Storman, and so much more. Secure your spot now at Renew.org slash events. That is Renew.org slash events. Hope to see you there.